Thank you. Once again, it has been a joy to continue to uh, be here and minister with you. Uh, there are some York peppermint patties out there as well because we live, we live in York County. So those are just reminders. And uh, we are with the Safford family, and they don't eat a lot of that. So if you're uh, very health conscious, you, you don't need to be bribed by that, but there is uh, a sign-up sheet out there as well. If you would like to receive our prayer letter and know what's going on in our ministry, please uh, do take the time to sign up uh, for that out there. Uh, we read in our responsive reading just a moment ago from uh, Romans 10, and I would like to, uh, to take us back there, and if you listen carefully, you will see me purposely warp the word of God this morning for a reason. Verse 14 of Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a Bible? That's not what it says, is it? Sometimes I wish it did. And here's why. Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier and cheaper to send Bibles around the world instead of missionaries? After all, if we sent Bibles around the world, it'd be a lot cheaper. Uh, it'd be a lot faster. Uh, Bibles don't have to uh, assimilate the cultures around the world like a missionary does. Bibles don't need a car to drive them about. They don't need food to eat. They don't need the kind of shelter that a human being needs. And we could, we could go into all kinds of reasons about how much easier it would be to send Bibles around the world. Now, I am not saying by this, and I don't believe the passage is teaching, that a Bible is unnecessary. I think it is saying that something in addition to the Bible is needed. Because what is it that the preacher preaches? He preaches the Bible. And so he does need to have content for his message. But if we send only Bibles, what normally happens? People won't read them. Do you know people here in the United States who have Bibles that virtually ignore them? And have we not been a culture that historically has had the Bible much more central to it than it is today? I don't think that's because we have less Bibles now than we had then. I think rather it's because we're not reading and heeding those Bibles. I would give you a couple of examples. Uh, there was a time, uh, and, and I think this may be interfering, I'm using my cell phone for the scripture reading to get New American Standard. If that continues, I'll turn it off and I'll read from the King James and you'll still be able to follow along. But uh, I remember a time, and I, I mentioned this trip in Sunday school when we were in China, and we were in the town of Wuhan. It's a big university uh, city, actually, and, and we were really being blessed in our ministry there as the Lord was using us. And right outside the hotel where we were staying was actually a government guard, and he would walk on the sidewalks, and he was dressed in uniform. And we had our national missionary with us who actually lives in Hong Kong, and he ministers about half his time in mainland China. It takes him about 15 minutes to get there. 
Wuhan's a little further away than that, but he had been ministering to university students there, and we were there to meet those students as well. And as we uh, were out on the sidewalk, as we would exit our hotel, we would see this man. International had Bibles with him, Chinese Bibles, and he offered one to this government guard. And I thought, this is going to be interesting to see what happens here. The man welcomed it, embraced it, seemed very excited to receive it. And in fact, the next day, he came back with a scarf that belonged to his mother, who was deceased. He said, this scarf is very special to me. It belonged to my mother, and I want to give it to you because you have given me a Bible. That man, I would assume, has gone on to read that Bible because he was very appreciative of receiving it. And I trust he has come to Christ through reading it. But would you not admit with me that that is a rare response? That someone would be so thankful to receive a Bible that they would give you... <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> Indeed. So we'll see now if we can, uh, thank you, brother. Um, he's given me plenty of physical food and now some spiritual food while I'm here as well. More often than not, people will not give that response to the word of God. What normally happens is something that happened in Nepal, and I want to share that story with you. We were ministering. Uh, and meeting with one of our missionaries who is in Kathmandu, Nepal, and he, uh, he's actually an Indian national, and he's serving there in Nepal, and he's got a fruitful and wonderful ministry. He's developing men under him. It's encouraging to see that happen. Uh, and in fact, I, I, I still can see it very vividly in my mind. It's, it's not easy to share the gospel in Nepal. You do get threatened. It is difficult. And I remember we, we met in this little room in the top of this building, and I can still see those nationals who sat around, uh, Nepalese who sat around on the floor, and the children were there, and the ladies were there, and the men were there. And as they began to sing Amazing Grace, the missionary who was with me from our staff, tears just started to come down his cheek. And I started to develop tears as we were singing that song, and we got to the part where every tribe and tongue will be involved. And I've had the opportunity to see those people in those parts of the world in intense poverty, in intense uh, difficulty in their environment, but gather together in like precious faith and sing praise to the same God that we have. And as we were getting ready to leave a certain place where we had met with our missionary in Nepal, it was actually in a little mountain chalet. Uh, it was cheaper to stay there than it was in Kathmandu, and it gave us some time alone with our missionary to pray and to strategize with him. He talked about church polity and church authority and all kinds of different things. We had some wonderful talks together. And we were getting ready to leave. And I started to talk with the woman who was one of the owners of this little mountain chalet hotel there. It was called Hotel at the End of the World. And from it, you could, see the, you could see much of the Himalayan mountain range, including Mount Everest, off in the distance. 
And it was just a beautiful place to see God's creation as well. As we were getting ready to leave, I started to talk to the woman who had married uh, a man there from Nepal. His father had started this place. She was Dutch. And she had come there because there was a Buddhist guru there, and she wanted to learn more about Buddhism. And this woman knew an incredible amount about Buddhism. But I started to talk to her about the Bible. And I did it by really talking about things that were going on in the world scene. And, and I said, you know, as we look at globalism, as we look at the world becoming one, and, and as we look at the economies of the world struggling, and, and, and all these kinds of different things I was bringing in, I said, do you know much of this is prophesied in the scriptures? Do you know that really the world scene is actually going exactly the way the Bible said it would go? And it, and it, it kind of piqued the interest of this woman. And as we continued to talk, she asked a million-dollar question. She said, would you tell me what is the goal of Christianity? What does it seek to accomplish? Well, you don't ask a preacher that question unless you're ready for the answer. But I thanked the Lord for that question. And I said, well, let me begin by saying that the goal of Christianity is to bring people to faith, personal faith, in Jesus Christ, and then to conform them to his image, to make men and women who receive Christ like Christ. That is the goal of Christianity. But I said to understand that, you need to know who Christ is and what he is like. Would you allow me to share that with you? She said, yes, I would. And so for about 45 minutes as we were getting ready to leave, I shared with her the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that she would know who it is that believers in Christ are to become like. When I was done, this woman said to me, in all of my life, I have never had Christianity explained as thoroughly as you just explained it. And that only took about 45 minutes of time. I said to her, I said, we have to leave. But I said, everything I've shared with you is from the Bible. I've tried even to attach verses to it. I said, as I leave, I would encourage you to read the Bible. And then a very interesting thing happened. She had some relatives visiting, and one of the girls who was visiting got up from the table. This was in the lunch area, the little restaurant they had there. She walked over, and on the shelf in that same room was a Bible that had been placed by the Gideons. It's wonderful that they place those Bibles and people have been saved through their ministry. But here's the point. That Bible was there the entire time and yet she didn't know who Jesus was. She had never heard it explained the way I explained it. And there was far more in that Bible than I had just shared with her. But she was ignorant of it. Why? Because she needed someone to preach it to her. 
And that's what Romans 10 is talking about. And that's why we go through the expense and the inconvenience and whatever it is to send missionaries and to support missionaries because God has decided to involve us personally in the process. I say this reverently, but if that woman gets saved in heaven, if I see that woman in heaven, I will probably dance on those golden streets, but the Bible that was on that shelf will not. And the point is that God has ordained it such that we can be involved in the process. He doesn't just want a Bible. He wants a preacher. He sent his son so that the living word would flesh out the message that was being taught and preached. In the same way as we become like Christ, we like him take a living message as we accompany the word of God and we bear it with us and we preach and teach it. Romans 10 says that's the way God ordained for it to be. How shall they hear without a preacher? And so we have the privilege of being involved. But that privilege is not only a privilege, it's a responsibility and it can be intimidating. So what I want to talk with you about today, this morning, and then expand upon it tonight in a different way, but how do we declare the gospel? Now, I shared last night five things we need to do to be found faithful stewards of the Word of God. And the first one was to digest it or store it on the inside. The second one was to do it or show it on the outside. Now, these things are in a logical order. The third one, which I skipped, was to declare it. May I say here at the beginning that one of the reasons we don't declare the word of God as we should is because we're not adequate on the first two areas. Sometimes we say, well, what am I going to say? Well, as I shared last night, if you've been saved even three years and you've been faithfully storing the Word of God inside through memorization and meditation regularly in your life, there's not going to be a bit of trouble about what to say to a lost person. Because if it's stored in there, the Holy Spirit has promised to give us remembrance and it will come out. And you will say things that are outside of your training, that are off of your list, because you've stored it in there and the Holy Spirit will bring it forward as you need to say it to lost people. And it's an exciting thing to watch God carry you as you speak to someone else because you've buried the scriptures inside of you and they will come out. And the, another reason, not only because we don't digest it, but because we don't do it. And if you know that you're not living in obedience to the scriptures, it's going to get in the way of you witnessing to others. Because you already know they're going to see you as a hypocrite. And nobody respects a hypocrite. The answer, though, is not to stop declaring it. The answer is, take care of the first two things. And then you will be equipped and respected as you declare the word of God to others. Now, in declaring the word of God, I would like to ask you a question. If someone came to you, and it's a little different question than this woman asked me, but it is asked in the Bible. If someone came to you and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What would you say to that person?
normally I get the answer, which is a biblical answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that is absolutely true. But I want to submit to you that that's where we end the gospel presentation, not where we begin it. If that's all you say to a person, they most likely are not going to have any context to decipher what you have just said. And there's no way they're going to understand how faith in someone who lived so long ago is going to do anything to give them eternal life today. A better place to begin the answer to that question is the very place that Jesus began his answer. It's in Matthew 19. There was a man who came to him and he asked in verse 16 of Matthew 19, someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So there's the question. And Jesus answered him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now what life is he talking about in verse 17? What kind of life? Based on the question in verse 16, the only life he could be talking about is eternal life. So how is Jesus telling this man to have eternal life? He's telling him to do what? Three words. Keep the commandments. Now what does that sound like on the surface to you? It sounds like work salvation, doesn't it? I, I, I thought we couldn't work our way to heaven. I thought we couldn't get to heaven by keeping the commandments. Why in the world is Jesus telling this man to keep the commandments? Well, number one, we would all have to agree that if Jesus said it, it has to be what? True. God cannot lie, and he's God in human flesh. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Certainly, if he tells a man, you gain eternal life by keeping the commandments, it's got to be a true statement. And so he goes on, and I'm not going to leave you hang there. I will for a little while. But in verse 18, he says to him, which ones? And Jesus said, and he begins to deal with the horizontal commandments that relate from person to person here on earth. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In what Jesus did in verse 21, he was showing the man that he had actually broken the very first commandment. What does it say? This man was wealthy, right? And when Jesus narrowed this conversation down to, will you choose me over your wealth, what did the man do? He chose his wealth over Christ and he walked away. Proving that he could not do what? He could not keep the commandments. Now see, 
as, 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 as we witness to someone, I don't care if they're Buddhist, if they're Hindu, if they're Muslim, they may have different views of what heaven is. They may call it paradise. They may call it nirvana. It may be a oneness with the universe that they get absorbed into. There are different views of heaven. But they all believe you get there the same way. By being good enough. And this man believed that too. If you look specifically at the question he asked, look, look at it there in verse 16. Teacher, what, what's the next word? Good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life. And when Jesus answers that question, he answers it honestly. Because this forms the standard of what God expects of us. If we are going to enter heaven based on our performance, and that's what every natural man thinks, it doesn't matter his religion. He thinks he's achieving whatever his view of heaven is by being good enough. And yes, Muslims believe that too. That's the whole point of jihad and suicide bombers and everything else. It may look odd to us, but that's their way of working to their heaven. And there isn't a natural man in his thinking who doesn't think that he gets there by being good. So let's begin our gospel presentation there with a lost person and say, I've got a question for you. How good do you have to be to get to heaven? How good do you have? That's what they're thinking, isn't it? And they're never sure what? They're never sure that they're good enough. You know why they're not sure? Because they aren't good enough. If we could perfectly keep God's law and conform ourselves to the character of God's very righteousness, we could enter heaven based on our performance. The problem's not with the law. The problem is with our inability to keep it. So tell a lost person, here's how good you have to be. You have to perfectly keep God's commandments. Not 90%, the 10% is going to keep you out of heaven. Not 95%, the 5% you missed will keep you out of heaven. Not even 99%. James said if you break one, you're guilty of the whole. This man had broken the first one. It didn't matter if he kept all the others. And so, when you share with someone how good do you have to be to get to heaven, that's what they're thinking and they're not sure. I call this the TP method. I'm going to share three simple things with you. The first one is total perfection. That's how good a person has to be to enter heaven. Totally perfect. Now, you and I know, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit because our theology is right, I'm sure. You and I know that when we stand before Jesus Christ, we will be what? We'll be complete in him. We will stand perfect in his presence, bearing his righteousness. We'll see him as he is, and we'll be like him. 
Now listen, this is not only theological, but it's logical. Because you can say to that person, listen, God is a perfect person, a perfect being. He's actually in three persons. But God is a perfect being, and heaven is a perfect place. If God let imperfect people into heaven, how long would it be heaven? How many sins did it take to destroy the Garden of Eden? One. If one person enters heaven tainted by sin, it will no longer be heaven. It's only a matter of time till it becomes as wicked as earth. Is that where you want to go? That's not where I want to go. So if you're not perfect, how are you going to get there? Now, there's actually another passage that I go to. I shared Matthew 19 just really as a launch as a launching pad to show you how Jesus began with this man and to show you that pattern. But the verse that I normally use is in Matthew 5. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the last verse in the chapter. Now, I am a dispensationalist, absolutely. And so what I'm going to say, some dispensationalists may argue with, and you may argue with it, and that's okay. But just follow me here for a minute. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus makes what is an astounding statement. He says, therefore, you are to be what? As your heavenly Father is. Now, I know that it can mean whole or mature or complete, and we just saw it that way in Matthew 19. But I personally believe in this passage that Jesus meant what he said there, and here's why. Number one, he says, you have to be as perfect as who is. Who's the measurement? So make perfect mean whatever you want it to mean. Make it mean whole. You've got to be as whole as God the Father is, which is what? Perfectly whole. If you want it to mean mature, you've got to be as mature as God the Father is, which is perfectly mature. Jesus is making his Father the standard here. And furthermore, if you back up to verse 20, he at least means this, because in verse 20 he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that had to astound his earthly audience because no one on an earthly level was more righteous than these people. Externally, which is what man looks at, you couldn't find anybody that was more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, and that's exactly the point that Jesus was making. Furthermore, they themselves had to be astounded because he was telling them that their righteousness wasn't going to get them into the kingdom. And his point was that the pinnacle of human righteousness is not enough. You need the kind of righteousness that God the Father possesses if you're going to enter his kingdom. The only people who will be there are those who are like him in possessing his righteousness, which is a righteousness that exceeds or surpasses human righteousness. And so in the verses that come in between verse 20 and verse 48, Jesus actually takes the law and he internalizes it. And he says, even if you look okay on the outside, which, by the way, is what the scribes and Pharisees did, what are you thinking on the inside? Because that's what God looks at. And so by the time this chapter boils down in this sermon that Jesus is preaching, he is saying... 
basically that we've got to have and display the very righteousness that God himself possesses both externally and internally. Now when you share that with a lost person, if the spirit of God's at work, and I skipped over something just because of lack of time, but what does the spirit of God do in this world? According to John 16, he convicts of three things. What are they? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. What I'm sharing with you is not that by any means the only way to share the gospel, but however you share the gospel, you should have those three elements in it. What is sin? Sin is a failure to measure up. It is a missing of the mark that God requires. And the mark that God requires is the one that Jesus shares right here. If you're going to enter heaven based on your ability to get yourself there, you've got to be perfect before God, internally and externally. That is the standard you must measure up to if you're going to be good enough for heaven. Now, at that point, the person you're talking to, especially if the Spirit of God is at work, is going to realize, I can't do this. I can't achieve this. And that's exactly what you want them to realize. The first question was, how good do you have to be? The answer is, you have to be totally perfect. The second question is, well, how can I get there? Because I can't muster up what is necessary on my end to perform that. This was chapter 5, last verse. The book is Matthew, first book in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 48. I'd like to think of another chapter 5, last verse. This time the book is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, last verse. The verse is verse 21. And I'm assuming that many of you, most of you, are familiar with this. He made him, that is, God the Father made his son Christ. Christ is seen, mentioned there in verse 20. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? Isn't that the righteousness that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Wasn't he talking about the righteousness of God? And didn't he say that's what you need to enter my Father's kingdom? You can't get there with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You need God's righteousness. And here we see that God did something so that we could have his righteousness. The, the, the second TP here is trading places. A sinner needs to see the cross as a place where Christ traded places with him. On the cross, Jesus is taking what I deserve because I have failed to keep God's law. I can't perfectly fulfill it. I cannot be totally perfect. I, I cannot ready myself for heaven through my own efforts. I will always fail. I will always fall short. So the cross is the place where Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, which is death. And on that cross, Jesus is dying to pay for my sin, but in he is bearing my sin. In fact, he is becoming sin for me on my behalf, but he's offering me something in exchange for my sin. What is he offering me? 
God's righteousness. Now, if the Holy Spirit drives this home in a person's heart, something's bound to happen. And what we're doing here is we're laboring with Paul said we labor together with God when we share the gospel. Didn't he say that? One plants, another waters, but who gives the increase? God does. So he said when we're in the process of sharing the gospel, we are laboring with God. Who is the specific member of the Trinity that causes regeneration to happen in a human heart? Who's the specific member of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. And so we want to work with the Holy Spirit. If we know the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment, then that's where we need to go when we share the gospel. So as we share the standard of God's law and how perfectly we need to meet it, and we understand we fall short, that shows us our sin. And we understand, you see, when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, here's what the natural man does. He says, most people today will admit they're sinners. The problem in our culture today is not that everybody's so good, nobody's a sinner anymore. It's that everybody's so bad, nobody cares. Have you noticed that? Today we flaunt our sin. Today we take everything that God has said is wrong and taboo, and in our culture, we don't have, it's out of the closet, folks, and we put it on parade, and we're proud of our sin. So the issue now is not that I'm not a sinner, it's that who cares? And if, you, if I am willing to admit I'm a sinner, I'm not as bad as this guy over here. And that's where the issue of righteousness comes in because when the Spirit of God, and the word convict means to expose, when the Spirit of God exposes our sin, he then exposes God's righteousness. The sin is mine, but the righteousness is God's. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is stacking sinners against God's righteousness, and he's saying there's a gap here that you can't fill. And that's exactly what you and I need to do when we witness to people. We need to say, here's your sin, but here's the God you're going to stand before. And there's a gap between your performance and his performance, and you will never close it. The only hope you have of heaven is if somehow God has worked to close that gap because you can't close it. And so on the cross, Jesus takes my sin... And he bears it in my place. And he bears the penalty of my sin, which is death. And in exchange for my sin, he offers me God's righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying. The righteousness that I need is available in him. Those are the last two words. So the third thing then is... If the righteousness I need to enter heaven is in him, how can I be in him? There's one more verse, and that's in Philippians chapter 3. Now, by the way, I'm not saying either that this is the absolute sum total of the gospel in the sense that I firmly believe, especially in people who have other religions and other faiths, you not only have to share what Christ has done, but you need to share who Christ is. 
Mormons believe that Christ did everything we believe he did, but they don't believe he is who the Bible says he is. The person of Christ is important as well. I'm dealing this morning, though, primarily with the performance of Christ and how believing in him actually does accomplish salvation. Philippians chapter 3, so this is not a chapter 5 last verse, but you will see something here. Look at verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, and may be found, here's our phrase, in him, not having what? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now that I've laid a foundation and I come to this verse, they understand they can't work their way to heaven. They can't close the gap. God did something to accomplish that on the cross where Jesus bore their sin and its penalty in their place, but he offers them God's righteousness in return for their sin. But that sinner is going to understand that not everybody's automatically saved because of the death of Christ, and that's exactly right. You now have to personally trust, and that's the third, trust personally in Christ. First point was total perfection, Matthew 5.48, that's the sin issue. The second one is trading places, that's the righteousness issue. We gain it by being in Christ, who died on the cross in our place, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The third one is actually the judgment issue, and I'm using Philippians 3.9 because Paul is saying, I want to be found. Be found by whom? Aren't all of us ultimately going to stand before God? Doesn't Hebrews 9.27 say it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment? When you stand before God, how are you going to be found? Paul says, I'm going to be found in one of two ways in Philippians 3.9. I'm either going to be found having my own righteousness, and he has already said that that righteousness won't work. He gives, you can develop it here in the passage, but here's something else I like about this passage. What is the last word in verse 5? Philippians 3, verse 5, what's the last word? Sorry. Pharisee, isn't it? The man who wrote these words was a Pharisee. He says so. He got what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and understood that the righteousness of a Pharisee couldn't get him to heaven. He understood that he needed a righteousness that exceeded that, that surpassed that, that was a completely different kind of righteousness. It wasn't human righteousness, which is based on trying to keep the laws. He says there in verse 9, but it is based through faith. That's the opposite of works. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so now when you say to that person, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you've given him a foundation for that concept. He understands if the Spirit of God has been at work, someday you're going to stand before God. That's the judgment. How's God going to find you? If he finds you struggling like the scribes and Pharisees, 
Pharisees did to clothe yourself with your own righteousness, even as Adam and Eve did all the way. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. They did the same thing all the way back in the garden. But if that's how you're going to be found when you stand in God's presence, you're not going to make it. You've got to have God's righteousness. It's only available in Christ. You must be in him, and you are placed in him when you place your faith and trust in him, believing that he died for your sin, that he is the only way to heaven, and that only through your faith in him can you be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. And then when Christ actually returns and receives us unto himself and we stand in his presence, again, you can expand upon this. John says we will be like him. We will see him as he is because that's been accomplished through the work of Christ. You must know Christ. And when you lay it out this way, John 14, 6 does not become such a horrible, offensive passage of Scripture. That lost person is going to understand that the reason Jesus is the only way to heaven is because he's the only one who's ever done this. There is no one in all of history that has sinlessly kept everything that God required and fulfilled the law in ways we can't and then bore our sin to die in our place, rose from the dead to conquer death and offer us eternal life. He's one of a kind. This message isn't duplicated anywhere. And if that lost sinner wants heaven, they've got to embrace the person who's never been duplicated in history, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three simple verses there you can use, especially if you're in a hurry with a person to at least plant seed. I will tell you that I have made those three verses the the center point of many messages that I have preached around the world. To date, there has never been someone that didn't respond to that message. Now, I don't know what the Spirit of God's doing. It can be a superficial response, but I just wanted to show you a simple way to deal with the concepts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As we close this morning, I think we would all admit that the greatest difficulty we have is not knowing how to share the gospel. I'm trusting that you do, and you may have ways much better than the simple one I just shared. But knowing how to share the gospel and actually doing it are two different things, aren't they? Where does the power and boldness to share the gospel come from? That's what we're going to deal with tonight. So I trust you will come for our closing message and we will look at that and we will share some deep, precious truths, I think, from the Word of God that can empower us to be the witnesses that God wants us to be. I thank you for your attentiveness this morning. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be here. And uh, Pastor Chris, if you would close as you would see fit, I'll leave that under your authority.